Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. In short, to feast upon the words of Christ. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Other ideas may sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Book of Mormon, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. Welcome to episode 45 of the Third Hour Podcast. Reprise. I'm your host, Taylor. Amanda. Andrew. I'm Ryan. This week, we're going to be covering Ether chapters 12 through the end. What? Which was 15, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chapters 12 through 15. <laughs> Ryan, you want to tell us what happens in this exciting finale? I got you. Wars, dissensions, <laughs> and wickedness dominate Jaredite life. Enter Ether, the prophet, in the days of Coriantumr. He cries from morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. Faith, a powerful word, a word that Moroni elucidates and expounds for us in this week's reading. He also explains why God gives us weaknesses so that we might be humiliated. <laughs> Is that the synonym? No. <laughs> no, they're different. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> Listeners, you know what it is. If you don't, go and read. Moroni sure does drop some doctrine bombs in this chapter, doesn't he? Now, back to Ether. He prophesies some more, gets kicked out, writes down the Jaredite history, and foretells of their destruction, all in the comfort of the cavity of a rock. <laughs> this whole situation smells like shiz, and we'll find out why on this, the 45th episode of the Third Hour podcast that was good I like wow that. That, was good. <laughs> that was very much a callback to the vernacular of your childhood yes <laughs> that exceeded my expectations and also was way below them all at the same time <laughs> so what did everybody think there's only so many times i can hear about a battle that was just bad before it gets boring yeah <laughs> how many times does it go back and forth a lot but the when i was young i was told by an older person who I hold in some esteem named my father. <laughs> and he said that the reason the Book of Mormon has so many battles is to keep the interest of young men. I have always, as a young man, and now as a not as young man, found the battles to be terrifically repetitive. Mm. <laughs> so, take that, Dad. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Andrew's dad. I mean, in some sense, the redundancy here is kind of my impression. I mean, it's really obvious that Moroni is trying to globalize some of the lessons that we learned from the Nephites' destruction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, show that they happen in another culture, show that they're sort of, he's trying to universalize the certain messages. That's, that feels very clear to me here. Well, and part of what I like about not just the repetitiveness of it, but the reaction to our reaction to the repetitiveness about, oh my gosh, we have to do this again. <laughs> um, With a guy named Shiz, nonetheless. <laughs> well, and then you lose track of which one you're on. And Shiz like, was a moron. Like, wait, that's a different person. Right? Yeah, like, <laughs> wait, right. wait, 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 I thought that one died. Is that his son? What's going on? But part of what I like about the repetitiveness and the boringness of it is that when you take it to the personal place and like that we're going through our own battles with Satan and la di da don't you ever sometimes go, I am so sick of this. <laughs> I am so sick of that. I am still dealing with this temptation or this particular sin and like that I've had this battle for what feels like 450 friggin' years and like sometimes we get better and sometimes we get worse and like it sometimes and like so to take it to that metaphorical place and go okay I now I can see how these people had their literal battle and sucked at it so how can I do the opposite to maybe stop having this battle myself and mm. to stop being sick of this battle 
with my in myself. Yeah, it definitely has to be one of those learn to be wiser than they were. Otherwise, it's a really depressing analogy, actually, because it's like I'm having this battle and I'm going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like it's that sometimes when you say to yourself, why am I still having this battle? I'm just going to lose. Then like you're foretelling for yourself kind of in, in that minimum. That Self-fulfilling prophecy. Is that what you're trying to say? Thank you. I, of course, think it'd be still a good movie because the parts that's repetitive, you just do a rad, like it fades in and out of just gory. <laughs> uh, this is the this is what the episode should have been called because in the end of that movie, all of a sudden there's, there's the smoke and, and just like carnage and then Ether walks out <laughs> and he looks down and just goes, told you so. And that is it. There's your title. Well, and then Ether... <laughs> writes down his sad farewell and roams off into the mist. Peace out. And then like yeah. two days later, people turn up and are like, hey, hey, Coriantumer, you want to come out to live the live the rest of your sad days with us? And it's like, well, I hope Ether got twinkled. Otherwise, he's just <laughs> roaming in the wrong part of the forest where there are humans the other direction. Yeah, there could have been other humans there too. I mean, I'm mm. increasingly have the opinion that the Nephites were a small group among mm. many. So maybe he hung out with someone else that didn't keep a record or something. Maybe. Do we think that millions of people died? It, that that's literal? Yeah. Like they covered the entire face of the land, even though four days after the battle ended, more people roamed in and were all, well, hey, people we've never met before. Is it four days? Well, Not, I, I, not literally four days, but... Like four could have been, could have been a while. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, uh, he was—he just got the crap beaten out of him, but was—but was still alive when they roamed up. So it can't have been, uh, and like they said, he was wounded still. So it can't have been a super long period of time. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Andrew, I don't really know what I mean. The whole story, like, it takes so literally the idea that like every man, woman, and child, and the entire emperor is like gathered to one side or the other, and then they just keep endlessly killing each other until they're all dead except for two. I tend to think that's exaggerated. It just seems like ancient hyperbole. Yeah. Mm. The reason I, the only reason I bring it up is because I, I do know that a number of quote unquote archaeologists <laughs> interested in Mormonica have uh, tried to find where's where are these battles and you know you don't find some place where it looks like millions of people, people died yeah. in you know pre-Columbian America yeah I wonder what that would even look like well, I imagine there'd be bones. Yeah, probably. It's just million is a lot of people like, yeah. like ancient cities don't even hit a million usually so right. like just seems like a lot. Salt yeah. Lake only hit it like in my lifetime. I feel like maybe that's not quite true. No, yeah, Salt Lake is pretty small. Yeah, compared to like big cities. Yeah, so I, I, I've always tended to think of it as ancient hyperbole. Both, okay. the, both the total numbers and also the idea that like everyone dies except those two. I find that a little bit. Yeah, like, like in ancient warfare, like. You watch Gladiator and you, you know, you get this impression that ancient armies are just grinding each other until one of them's dead. In reality, casualties were like two to five percent, and then one side ran away. Yeah. <laughs> because they saw the way the winds were blowing. <laughs> so it's just very hard to imagine like anyone being like, they've killed all of the children. We're gonna kill every, you know, it's just yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I see it as utter destruct being hyperbole that's supposed to point to complete destruction of their society. Well, and like, you don't have to kill everybody to have the complete destruction right. of your society. Right. So. It's true. As we jump into the text, I feel like we should go straight to Moroni's, this is a pretty famous sermon he gives us on faith, right? Faith. So it, it, it starts <laughs> with some words of uh, Ether, uh, verse four, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. Uh, which that hope gives us an anchor, makes us sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works. So this is apparently Ether, and then um, Moroni is going to riff on this because apparently people didn't like what Ether had to say, and apparently I'm favoring the word apparently tonight. <laughs> uh, people didn't like what he had to say because um, they couldn't see what he was talking about. Hmm. And so Moroni goes on to talk about this quite a bit. So verse verse six is a verse that for a long time I really struggled with 
Um, so there's this famous phrase, dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. So I wanted to just throw out to you guys, to you people, to you persons. <laughs> you, I just, I just want, you, you can I just, use guys to describe so me. It's fine. Two boys I wanted and to, one girl. You could I, have an awkward, like you fee males. <laughs> like you cover everyone. <laughs> when you read this phrase, what do you feel it's saying about God's expectation of us in terms of our faith and our belief? What, what do you feel like is being asked of us by this phrase? Which verse? Six. Verse six down at the bottom. Twelve, the, six. The, not, the last phrase. Because yeah. you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Normally, this, like the faith, hope, and charity stuff is really fuzzy and squishy. And sometimes I really like fuzzy and squishy, but other times I do not like fuzzy and squishy. Like I want my to-do list. Um, And like, how on earth, like, do you practice faith? Like I don't, in our traditional concept of it. So it's both really awesome and really frustrating. Um, And I'm stoked because this week I stumbled across, stumbled across, Don't hide it, Amanda. I did some intense research going (laughs) over people's various and assorted definitions of faith to try and better wrap my head around the concept as something not nebulous. Um, And it probably would have benefited me to go straight to the church's website and the topical guide because that's where I found the definition that worked really well, but heaven forbid I ever do things the easy way. Um, Multiple sources is important. Yes, it was, yeah, it was great. I got where I needed to get in the end. Um, It was a very effective use of my time. Um, But in like literally the first paragraph in like the not topical guide. Bible but like, dictionary. No, it, it, just on the website, they don't call it the guide for the scriptures. Something, nah. Uh, that has little definitions and also references. Yeah, is yeah, that what it's the called? Guide for okay. The scriptures. Um, yeah, something so like that. The, yeah, the topical guide, but basically the digital version of it, um, where they've got lovely, lovely links, which I went to first <laughs> instead of reading the first paragraph, um, and they referred to faith as working towards a worthy goal. And that was like a light bulb went off and faith suddenly made like 14 different kinds of non-squishy sense. So when I look at this dispute not because you see not for you see no receive no witness until after the trial of your faith, I think about not because it used to be frustrating in that nebulous, you just got to believe. And if you believe hard enough and long enough, then you'll get your witness. Instead of that nebulous way to think about faith as the action, as the process of being faithful and striving um, towards this thing that I am trying to have faith in, um, that I get my witness, I get my knowledge, I get my testimony after I have gone through that trial, that process of striving towards the thing to have my faith in. Um, And so dispute not because you see not, you don't get to be ticked that you don't have faith in a thing that you haven't been striving towards trying to have faith in. So it's almost like that you've just been saying, I believe, I'm trying to believe, and like you haven't been working for it, so you don't get to dispute what you haven't seen because you haven't worked for that site. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, it, it, it does tell us well with uh, how Joseph Smith defines faith in the lectures on faith. He says that it's faith is the, it's the thing that motivates you to action because you... Uh, it, you have to have some belief that your action will matter, that it can lead to the actual attainment of something desirable, some goal, some object, something. And it's that belief that that's possible that motivates all of your actions, he argues. Um, And then basically goes on to, in some sense, he he goes on to argue that the, the unique contribution of Mormonism in a way, or of restored gospel theology is, (laughs) uh, is to, um, 
is to argue that the the ultimate object of our faith is God, and what that means is that we are striving to be like Him. Yeah, that there's a real sort of connection between His idea of faith and His idea of what it means to have faith in God. Um, that's very unique to our theology. So yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Nice. And uh, also, I mean, basically, the reason I struggle with this is because I used to interpret the way you did. I, I think a lot of people read this and they're like, okay, so when doubts come up, I just have to close my eyes really hard and not have them. Yeah, like, I, ju- <laughs> like, I just have to believe. I feel like that's how the scripture gets often interpreted. Yeah. Um, and that feels very passive to me. And also, if everyone acted like that, we'd never have any converts to our church either. Yeah. I mean, if that's the right thing to do when your beliefs get challenged, how does, how does anyone ever change their beliefs? including the people who have bad beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we should expect that we have a few. So this is not a good way to approach life, I feel like. Um, one thing that I... that, that uh, Sorry, that got loud there. <clears throat> um, another way I like to look at this that I think comes a little bit from... Uh, there's an obvious cross-reference here to uh, Hebrews 11. It's 11, right? Hebrews 11. There's an obvious cross-reference here to Hebrews 11. Um and there it gives this definition of faith. It uses the word um, evidence of things not seen. And um, I like to think of the word trial here. So we, you, like we're primed to think of trial like a hard thing that happens to us. But the more common secular definition of trial is like a clinical trial, like to put something or, or like a court trial to test the truth, to test the validity of something. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and so I like to think of this too, as it's saying similar to what you're describing, Amanda, it's very related, but, but specifically that, um, to gain belief in things that we don't yet see or don't yet know, we have to devise meaningful experiments and put those beliefs on trial to the test. Um, and I like, maybe I like that view because I'm a scientist, but I think that helps us a lot to think about our faith. And when you start thinking about it kind of scientifically, you start to realize that a lot of things we do are testing many things at once. You know, we want a certain answer to a prayer. Well, then we're at testing. Is there a God? Does he hear me? Uh, does he want to give me this thing? Am I doing the right things to get this? There's just a lot of variables that we're putting into there. And sometimes I think that's why we don't make progress. Um, but if we step back and say, what is it that I'm really trying to understand? And have I actually devised a way that's going to really move me in that direction? I like thinking about it that way. Nice. Well, and then when you knock out certain variables, like when you know, yes, there is a God and yes, he does answer my prayers and I'm not getting an answer, then you can start doing those subsequent tests. Okay. Why am I not getting an answer? Is it because, right. is this, is this how I get a stupor or am I asking the wrong question or uh, does he think I can do it myself? And like, then you can ask and run your follow-up experiments. Right. So speaking of Hebrews 11, hold on before you move on. Um, because how you automatically think of it in like clinical trial terms. Um, and then I automatically think of it in legal trial terms that (laughs) (laughs) this is great. Yeah. Um, The, and so I really appreciated that thought that I hadn't gone to clinical trial that you said it. And I was like, what in the, oh, I forgot those are a thing. Um, <laughs> How could you possibly right now forget that <laughs> clinical trials are a thing? I've just, <laughs> I've watched a lot of TV over the last couple of days, my friend. The brain just needed to be off. For lack of a better way to put it, you can be right and you can be wrong. And that sometimes we think faith means I just have to keep throwing myself at the wall because this I've been taught that this is the right thing. And so I know what the outcome of my trial needs to be. And so I need to manipulate my whatever to get to that right outcome. And instead, sometimes we just have to open, be open to the possibility that maybe God is telling me this thing is the wrong thing for me. Yeah, and that's something I actually really wanted to come to. So I I I, I went back and watched. Um, there's a there's a lecture I really enjoy that was given at a it's, Stanford does this um, like an LDS graduation ceremony in the Memorial Church on campus there, and cool. um, they had a professor of microbiology speak who's um, made some cool discoveries about immunology, and he talked about this idea of experimenting on the word and. Um, one of the things he talked about is that it's really unreasonable to expect an experiment, no matter how well designed to tell you a ton of stuff at once. Like one experiment's not going to tell you if there's life on another planet or how the entire immune system works. Um, experiments give you slivers of truth. And I think um, 
we like we have this narrative in the church that I I struggle with, which is you get the sliver of truth about the Book of Mormon, and there's like all these other dominoes that immediately fall, and um and I think we kind of do what you were just describing, where we feel like whenever we come up against some kind of friction in the church or with our beliefs, we feel like well the we we have to know the answer already because the Book of Mormon's true, but maybe the church can still grow, maybe our beliefs can still be sorted and, and fixed and refined. Um, and maybe the experiment to know the truth of the Book of Mormon tells you that God values the Book of Mormon and not much else. And you need to continue to do further experiments. And I certainly see why there's a logical chain of, you know, Joseph and the Book of Mormon. And, but, but there are lots of places for that chain to break down. I mean, how many churches are there that believe they go back to Joseph? Dozens, right? Um, like Mormon denominations? Yeah, yeah. 400. 400. So, you know, and we might say, well, we're the biggest one, but we're not the biggest Christianity sect, so that better not be a important truth claim. Hmm. Um, and so I just feel like um, I, I like thinking about what do I really know? And of course I can I can draw deductions and I can try to expand on that based on that core, but I like what you're saying, Amanda, about being willing to step back and let God teach me when some of the connections I made from that core weren't complete or weren't, or were just wrong. Um, that allows my faith to develop and grow. It allows my beliefs to be refined instead of me just being stagnant for the rest of my life, because it has to be this way. That's great. One of the things I like about the way that this section is laid out, which is very similar to the way that um, Hebrews 11 is laid out, is that they both give this format that I think is useful for their arrangement, that they both talk about faith, and then they talk about tribulation or chase or being chastised by God. It isn't the other way around, but I think we often think of it as being the other way around, right? That the non-believer will be chastened into having faith, or that we will receive a, you know, will be a will be a doubter until we have a trial that gives us faith. But the format that exists both in Ether 12 and in Hebrews 12 is actually the other way around, that we exhibit faith, and then we're given this warning that we need to look out for tribulation, mm. and we need to look out for God uh, chastening those who he loves. Hmm. Well, and isn't that so much better? Like, I, for me, I draw such comfort from that, that you're going to have, you're going to get your faith first. You're going to get to know that thing, and then you get to how you're talking about go through your trial, your experimental procedure and expound on it that you don't, you're not being asked to expound when you've been given nothing to expound upon. Yeah. And, and I think it, it, it starts to make even more beautiful sense to me when I start thinking of faith less as clinging to a belief and more as a evolving process, because then as the trial comes and as it causes problems for my beliefs, as it causes like discomfort, I'm able to exercise my faith by dealing with that discomfort, by making adjustments that help me to get to that goal, right? I mean, the way we started talking about faith is this idea of belief that I can get somewhere. And um, by believing I can reach out to God and making that the core of my faith instead of like a list of beliefs about God, then then as, as that trial knocks pieces off of my belief, that's okay because that's part of the process. And that's not my faith falling apart. That's my beliefs being refined uh, in the face of experience. Speaking of Hebrews 11, like Andrew pointed out, this is laid out really similar to Hebrews 11. Um, It's got this sort of definition of faith at the beginning, followed by a list of things that have been accomplished by faith. Um, Do you feel like this adds something to the story? Or are we really just getting a repeat of Hebrews 11 here? In a way, I feel like it's actually decontextualized a bit from Hebrews 11. At least in Hebrews, we have an understanding of what the central tension is about. I mean, Hebrews is very much, so it's written to the Hebrews, um, <laughs> but, but we're talking about Christian communities that are struggling with, do you embrace all of the peculiarities of this new way? And in this case, the peculiarities of the way are that you don't follow previous laws, or at least you're not stringent about them for new converts. So... Whoever the author is, which we will remind you, it's not Paul. <laughs> Priscilla. It's, like, it's likely someone else. Um, 
Someone very talented. Someone very talented. <laughs> it was good. Hebrews was good. Hebrews is very good. Hebrews is, in many ways, the final refinement of the Pauline school of thought. Um, and its argument is very poetic and very carefully laid out. But Hebrews is, is arguing against a very specific worldview, which in, in many ways is useful for us because we still inhabit that worldview to some degree, right. which is, what is it that saves you? Um, what, is, what are the essential factors to accepting uh, God's grace? And Hebrews has a lot of things to say about this. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, for instance, is very famous because not only does it say nobody is good, but it also points out that you are freely justified despite not being good, which is where a lot of modern Protestantism kind of, that's kind of their verse yeah. <laughs> in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, but in Hebrews 11, you get all these examples of faith, and they're specifically given to recontextualize those acts that they are about faith and not the act itself. Um, so it's this, it's this work versus acts, uh, work, sorry, work versus faith dichotomy. Um, is it the law that's saving you or is it s simply faith? And it does take a slightly different overall perspective. And I'm wondering if it really is that different or if it's that the ether just lacks that context that we have, that we know we're speaking to Hebrew Christian communities that have certain views, um, but I do think it actually comes down in a, in a little bit different place. So Hebrews gives the position that you are freely saved, but then willful sin can lose it. Here, I feel like the argument is actually a little bit the inverse, that you have certain criteria that you're required to meet in order to achieve grace, which, if, if I'm reading that correctly, would be a dramatic reversal of Hebrews. Um, and some of it might be quibbling over terms, like, is, it, are we really talking about, like, you know, I'm, I don't know if you're going to get to that in a moment, Taylor. But, um, but so I do think that there are tensions there between the text, but I wonder how much of it is context versus lacking context. Yeah, and I assume you're referring to, just to make this, um, make this explicit, um, like verse 26, for example, um, Moroni is worried about his weakness. Uh, he's he's worried that the Gentiles are going to mock what he's written, and the Lord says, "Fools mock, but they shall mourn." And my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. Is that kind of the thing you're referring to? That my grace is sufficient in the case that the person is already meek. Is that? Well, yeah, and and the next verse, which of course is a uh, scripture mastery famous verse, this idea that you need to be sufficiently humble before grace is applied to you. Um, in many ways, I feel like the central miracle that it at least is being espoused by Hebrews. And we could argue about, you know, that author also has a point of view. It could be incorrect compared to this. It can go either way, but I think there is a debate to be had there um, that you can be proud and achieve grace. You can be rich and achieve grace, you know, with, with God, all things are possible. Um, but having achieved grace, then a willful sin would lose it. Right. Is the argument presented by Hebrews. So I do think that there's an inversion of how do you achieve grace versus can you lose it before achieving it or after? Yeah. And in fact, um, there's a way to interpret Ether 12 that that almost kind of goes throughout where, where like you're saying in the, in the context of Ether 12, this list of things that were done by faith is more about showing that there was a prerequisite met before the miracle was delivered. Yeah. Whereas in the context of Hebrews, like you're saying, it was more about saying, no, it's not about what they did. It's about yeah. the fact that they were exercising, who they were exercising faith in as they did it. Is that... I actually think that this strikes at one of the roots of why many Christians consider Mormon sects to be heretical yeah. on issues of grace versus works. Um, so... Ma mainstream Christianity would argue that grace is a free gift and has no prerequisites beyond accepting the gift. Um, whereas, uh, you know, we see in, in the ether text that Mormons do tend to say, well, you have to have this very specific faith first. Even that faith has prerequisites. Those prerequisites are of themselves a type of act. Um, some people would argue that this is a bit overblown. Maybe if you're at home listening, maybe to you, the distinction doesn't seem important. Um, and you're in good company. Some theologians have agreed with you. 
Yeah. But many other theologians have felt so strongly about it that they have waged wars (laughs) 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 over delineations like this. Um, So it can matter to some people. Yeah. I think one way, at least for me, um, going back to this idea... Going back to this idea that I mentioned earlier, where Joseph not not only oh my goodness, apparently I can't talk tonight either. You're doing great, dude. For for me, um, one way that I kind of reconcile these, and I'm interested to see if I can actually say this coherently, or if it's just one of those things that's reconciled in my brain until I try to say it out loud. <laughs> um, but we were talking earlier about how Joseph understood faith. Joseph taught that faith was this um, this belief that you could achieve something that you hadn't achieved yet. And that he went so far as to say what we're supposed to achieve is to become like God, right? Um, And when you start to think about it that way, um, the works that accompany faith become almost, in a sense, part of the gift. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, I think. But to me, the thing that Christ is offering is the chance to, like, be sinless, that that's part of the gift. It's not—we tend to think of worthiness as a prerequisite for salvation— I actually think that what restored gospel theology argues is that worthiness is equivalent with salvation, that we are not, it's that not saved in your sins, but from them. Salvation is from our sins. And so it starts to make very little sense to quibble about whether or not it's faith or works. The fact that we're able to progress at all is a gift from God. And the fact that we try at all is an expression of faith. That's what Joseph argues. Um, and we rest that faith in Christ because he's the one that opened the path. And, and, and so, and the fact that the path is open at all, that's grace. And every time we take a step on that path, we're both receiving grace because we're on the path at all. And we're given more grace because the next step becomes open to us. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but. To us. And. <laughs> but. Oh. I, th- I think it gets muddy because what are we talking about when we talk about grace? Um, are we talking about, see, there's no, I, I don't read, especially in the Book of Mormon, I don't see exaltation theory in it. True. Which actually muddies the issue because we do see glimmers of exaltation theory in the New Testament. So I feel like we're arguing from the conclusion if we say that, if the goal is to become like God and therefore what sets us on the path is a quibble, but what if it isn't? It, it doesn't seem to be in the New Testament where that theology is actually even presented. I mean, I feel like Paul or at least his school would argue that even the way that you phrase some of that, that the promise of sinlessness is even phrased inaccurately. It's not sinlessness, it's freedom from sin. Yeah. And that means a distinct thing from sinlessness. Um, it means rejoicing in the fact that momentary stumbles are remediated. Um, it's, it's rejoicing in the fact that you don't even want to sin anymore. Uh, that, that's different than it's, it's rejoicing in being above the law because the law no longer binds you. So you, because you're so filled with the spirit, there's no such thing as a law that needs to guide you anyway. I mean, so that's what, that's the, that's the ideal that Paul was pushing for. Now, we, we know where that went. Paul didn't necessarily succeed. The yeah. religion that grew out of Paul is still very prescriptive. But I don't think that necessarily remediates the text that grows out of his thought. I think he would take umbrage with a lot of the things you said, actually. Um, does that make sense as how I make your what you said make sense <laughs> to me? <laughs> Like I find it very tidy, but only from only from the perspective of someone who's already convinced that Mormon theology has worked out things that I don't think Mormon theology has. I mean, for example, what is grace? Does grace apply to everybody, or does it apply to somebody who's on this exalted path? I mean, according to Paul, it basically applies to everybody. It's just that some people are going to be disciples, but the, they're still receiving a regular portion of grace. I mean, it just feels like we're arguing backward instead of forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, I definitely understand what you're what you're saying. Where I've applied a a theological worldview to ether that doesn't show up anywhere in the Book of Mormon, um, 
and and I and I and I think you're probably right that Paul would take issue. I know that many of my evangelical friends would agree would would be hurrahing what you just said. Well, and you could say something that agreed with Paul, and he would take issue. To be fair, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 there's a part of me that agrees with you that, that there's a lot to work out there, and there's a lot of work that we haven't done. There's another part of me that uh, rejoices in the mystery of grace and doesn't feel a need to work it out. Meaning that when you say something like, what is grace? Um, how much is it involved in my actions? What, what's the difference between sinlessness and freedom from sin? And, and to me, there's this, there's this, always there's this central paradox with Jesus that his grace is freely given, transformative, and what's the right word? Um, completely non-invasive. Like it, it doesn't, um, no, that's not the right word. Uh, it's and completely and completely respecting of my agency. So there's this sense in which God wants me to have hope that I can become like Him. And do I take steps toward that? Does Jesus enable those steps toward that? I think there's a there's a paradox in there and a mystery in there that um I don't feel a need or the capacity to untangle. So so when you have a an in-depth formulation you'll give it but when something is contrary to that then it's a mystery okay got it i'm not sure what you're saying there well i mean you just you you gave a a long in-depth untangling of the apparent contradiction here but then when i argue that it's more of a contradiction then it's a mystery i mean i it's just it's just the it's just the to me what's kind of the easy out of religious faith that when we want to define terms, we can, as long as it feeds into our worldview. But then the instant it doesn't, we're just like, oh, it's a mystery, and I'm fine with mystery. I didn't think of what I was saying of having defined grace. Okay. How, how did you think I defined it? Well, I feel like you were defining a lot about faith and action. Faith, yes. But the, the thing that I said I, I feel like is a mystery is grace. So would you define justification a particular way? I have a definition in my head, I think. Because they're the same word in Greek. I mean, my, my point is is that I, I, I'm not trying to pick on you. It's, it's just that I feel like my, my point is that there's a lot of muddiness here and attempts to reconcile them. I've never been persuaded that they're very coherent. And so to me, I asked for a reconciliation and I felt like you gave one and you had very concrete terms. But then when I point out that I feel like there's still a contradiction, then it becomes about mystery, if that makes sense. Yes, I think it makes sense. And the reason I think I'm, that that's the way I approach it. So coming back to how do we deal with the ways this is like and not like Hebrews uh-huh. is, I mean, to me, I say to myself, where does a chapter like this come from? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it comes a lot from Hebrews. And I think there's probably, when we've talked about where is Joseph being inserted in the text, I see a lot of Joseph insertion in the text here. I see Joseph developing his own theology here. I mean, so trying to get this reconciled to Hebrews just feels really muddy to me on so many levels. Sure. I, I'm not really even sure how to like, you know, one of the things that I feel like you were, you were taking issue with is that I was applying like a late stage Joseph theology to try and make sense of these two things. Sure. Um, but if I were to try and put myself in the right time frame, I don't know what time frame that would be. How much of this is Joseph? How much of this is Moroni? How much of this is Ether? It's just like trying to contextualize this into a worldview seems impossible to me in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. Do you get something out of this that you don't out of Hebrews? <sighs> and ideally for me... <laughs> Something that isn't like just imminently contradictory to Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, again, not that Hebrews is correct. I mean, we've seen Pauline documents are in tension with themselves all all the time. Is this too mean a line of questioning? No, I don't think it's mean. I think it's good to ask these questions. <clears throat> the goal is to understand faith and how it's going to help you. I'm not asking because I want to pick on Taylor. I know. Uh. I'm, I'm at, I really am not. I love picking on Taylor. I will never deny that. <laughs> I am not asking because I want to put Taylor on the spot. I am asking because to me there is a, there is a hard contradiction 
in the way these things talk about, yes, faith, yes, works, and yes, grace. So if I understand correctly, the contradiction is that the faith works dynamic in Hebrews is presented, excuse me, the grace dynamic in Hebrews is presented as you get your grace. Um, and it you doesn't matter, you're just going to get your grace. Yeah, to some degree. So just in the sense that justification is a gift that's given to everybody freely. And it's up to you whether you reach out and take it. I love how he just tosses out words like that's going to adding a new word to the mix is going to make it a justification. Justification. Yeah. So so being right with God. Okay. That yeah. God has sent Jesus. So man and God were not right with each other. Mm-hmm. So the entire function of God sending Jesus, whether that's himself or his son, is to bridge the gap okay. between man and God. And I know you've explained these things before. Oh, no. And it's, Ma- I love explaining these yeah. things. Okay. So restate your sentence now that you've given me the explanation for justification. Jesus did it. Jesus won. So you have that. So you have the gap is bridged. So the, now you can f- kick against that, but as long as you're willing to accept it, you can accept it. So you're reading the argument in Hebrews is that Jesus has done the work. Mm-hmm. You're covered. You can run away, but the work's done. Well, yeah, you can run away, but then yeah, can, you're kick, fighting. Yeah, yeah, kick and, against it. Yeah, I just didn't want to repeat the same can, words that you said. Can I jump in and ask one other clarifying question? Yes, um, join wh- the party. <laughs> and would you say that it's fundamentally opposed to Pauline theology as, as, as recorded in Hebrews to say that walking across the bridge that's already been formed includes some kind of effort other than acceptance? No. You wouldn't say that's fundamentally. No. So, so why did you, so that's what I. Wait, 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 wait hold on. Yeah, it becomes so, transformative. So you believe that the argument being presented in ether is that in order to reach that point of sunshine and gladness where the work is done, you first must exercise the faith, go through whatever version of trial slash goal yeah, making. Yeah, you, you have to be humble, you have to be meek, and then you can have faith. And then it is through that process that grace kicks in. Yes. So you are perceiving that the difference is grace comes first in Hebrews with no participation on your part, Whereas Ether is presenting that you must work to achieve grace. Yes. So, okay. Crudely. Bite me. (laughs) (laughs) Crudely? Well, because there's a lot of points where I would be like, well, let's bicker over like no effort on your part. Like faith is still an act. It's just a distinct act from other acts. It's an act without necessary prerequisite. Like, do you believe somebody can be saved on their deathbed, even though they don't take any act other than the act of faith and sincere repentance in their heart? But which one does that go with? The Hebrews. Yeah, I was going to say. That's all over I'm, in the New I'm Testament. Not, the so, not Paul letter. I'm so glad you understand what's going on here. <laughs> well, we can move on. I really am not trying to be a butt. It's just... This, this has mattered to millions of people for a reason. And I feel like we do it a disservice when we just kind of like fritter it off. Like it's not a big deal. How comfortable with the concept are we that he's not using grace, that Moroni is not using grace the way we conceive of the word grace? That well, this is I would a, be pretty uncomfortable with that. But like... That, that this is a translational thing oh no yeah it could it totally could be i mean it could be joseph smith i mean joseph smith's feelings on works and grace changed throughout his life and they didn't change in necessarily a coherent way sometimes they moved back and forth um it could totally be that okay and also it could be that ether's right and the Pauline school is wrong I'm open to that. Well, or that Ether was right and we're getting Moroni's summary and Moroni, as he then talks for the rest of the half the chapter, is that he it sucks can be that at too. this. And, and, I, and I'm also willing to concede, you know, that with Paul, we have an enormous body of work showing us how he reaches that conclusion. Sure. With this, we just kind of, but that's actually part of my problem with Ether is that it drops all of this stuff 
that has this contradiction and it expects me to just kind of like not see its reasoning. Whereas Paul, I have all of these books building to Hebrews. The entire corpus of Paul's work is building to Hebrews, even Mm -hmm. if he didn't write it. Mm -hmm. Like that's his school of thought best expressed. I do not have that here. No. Um, which is a little frustrating that I'm that they think they're just going to say it and I'm going to accept that over this formulated struggle where Paul has contradicted himself and corrected his contradictions and written epistles that later he had to correct and gradually formed this idea that he has conviction of because of an eyewitness with Christ. Like to me, that's a strong argument. And in here it just kind of like takes Hebrews and to me, gives it to us in kind of a chopped up form that preserves its broad argument, at least in structure, but actually deforms its entire statement. And I find that a little bit, it could be clarifying, but it could also be a tremendous heresy. And I, I'm interested in knowing which. Even if it's a heresy in good faith. I mean, historically, there are basically no bad faith heresies, <laughs> right? Like no one goes into the scripture and they're like, yeah, I'm going to try to pervert this. You know? <laughs> they, they go in and they see something and they, they latch on to it kind of incorrectly. Except for the dudes earlier in the Book of Mormon. We have several people. Yes, who... <laughs> the Book of Mormon presents, I mean, that, and that's one of those things with the Book of Mormon that's so hard with its authorship is you never really get this sense that anyone else is acting ever in good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I call it propaganda. <laughs> Have we gone way too into the weeds here? <laughs> oh yeah, we've. But now, you, all right, mm, apologies. I'm sorry, Taylor. No, no, no. Now we got to answer it because poor Taylor's well, been staring at this. Poor Taylor's been staring at the ceiling for the last twenty minutes. He's got to get his words out now. Well, you can just bash me. It's fine. Just be like, you're whack. Well, no, you're not whack. Well, Taylor might think. Well, I think he's a little bit whack. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just so interesting how all of us, our brains are programmed so differently. It's given me 20 years and I don't think I would have known. I'm sure I'll give myself the credit of saying I would have in 20 years noticed the dichotomy. I just don't know if I ever would have cared. Hmm. Taylor, this is a question that you can answer at length. How am I whack? <laughs> now, you could go on for days, but how it, am I whack in this no, In the context well, of grace. Okay. I think you're whack for thinking we can deal with this in a single podcast episode. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. <laughs> so, while I did at moments feel a little put on the spot, I will admit my silence is more from feeling like you're asking me like a hundred questions at once. Okay. Cough, um, cough. And one of the things that I think we've been wrestling with and dancing around the bush, this whole podcast is like, how do you actually approach the book of Mormon? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, w- 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 like you just said, we get to follow all of Paul's thought. And, um, that's really helpful to understanding what it is he's trying to say. And and even then there's plenty of disagreement about what it is exactly he's trying to say. Um, But those arguments can be extremely coherent. Mm -hmm. Um, The book of Mormon, maybe one of the ways in which I I think I might disagree with you, but, but I don't like that. I have to disagree with you is I just don't think the book of Mormon is even pretending to offer that. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, the Book of Mormon is, it's basically presenting itself as a commentary on the Bible that backs it up and through all these filters is about an ancient civilization. Uh-huh. And I realize that's not the way we treat it in the church. Um, yeah. But like, in some sense, I feel like you're asking way too much out of the text of Ether. You're asking more than it feels like the Book of Mormon is claiming to offer. Um, but that's a, there's a lot of problems with that argument though. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, so I, I, I'd like to distill it then if I'm asking too many questions, do we believe that grace is contingent on humility? Can you define grace? Yeah. There we is, go. is it the two, like we believe there's the two, the two things that happen, right? Well, and everyone's going to come back alive. Done. Well, yeah. And so th- that's one of the things I'm trying to unpick here is 
Paul get, when Paul t- talks about free justification, I know what he's talking about. Here, I feel like it's something we quote extensively, and I have no idea what it's trying to say. Are we talking about God reaching out to all men to assure their reunification to some degree with God? Or are we talking about exaltation, which is not a doctrine presented in this book? I don't think we're talking about any of those things at all here. So what do you think we're talking about? I think that Moroni is talking about the practical process of a lived life of faith. I don't think he's thinking about grand concepts of, of justification and sanctification. I think he's saying, if you want to know, if you want to have reasoned belief, then you have to test your belief. Mm-hmm. And if you test your belief, then that will empower you to do stuff. Uh-huh. And in Moroni's worldview, that will be very miraculous stuff. But I tend to think it will also be super non-miraculous stuff, like just having enough faith to study the scriptures enough to have a useful scripture to use in Sunday school when you need it. Uh-huh. Um and then when it comes to the grace, I think he's talking about God giving you divine help along your mortal journey. So instead of grace, he should have said like, or the translation ought to have said like the condescension of God. I don't even know if I would have made it that broad. I, I, I think I might have just said divine undeserved help. But, but, not, but it's not, to your point, it's not entirely free help. It's mm-hmm. help that comes in response to something that you do. But I feel like here the help isn't about justification and sanctification. It's about dealing with the fact that the Book of Mormon is crappy sometimes, <laughs> that it's weak. It's about dealing with your own weaknesses. It's about having your weaknesses and other people's weaknesses not make it impossible to continue on with the work while you're still stuck in mortality where everybody's weak. And I feel like the use of the word grace here is a little unfortunate because it it calls up all those theological arguments that we've been discussing. But at the same time, there's a, there's a way in which I like it because it reminds me that like, yeah, just because I was humble, that put me in a place to receive it, but that doesn't mean God had to give it to me. It, it is still have this, this sense of being a gift. Uh-huh. Um, but I agree with you with all the theological history with grace. I think it, it becomes complicated that that word is what gets used here. So do you th- would you suppose, per- for instance, that perhaps the complication would be cultural since we teach that verse in isolation without the preceding verse? And the verse meaning 27, right? Well, yeah. But that's the scripture mastery verse. Yeah. It's the previous verse that kind of gives it the translation connotation, which is a fun rhyme. In <laughs> yeah. case anyone wants to use that in a well, rap. Or- well, where I felt like you were asking me multiple questions kind of comes back to that question. Like... What's the cultural problem here? I think the cultural problem here is multifaceted. I think it's the way we're using grace, the way we're using the word grace. I also think it's that we we treat the Book of Mormon like it is a brilliant argument like Hebrews, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It just isn't, and it doesn't claim to be. And I'm not saying you're treating it that way. The Church treats it that way. Like this is The Church treats the Book of Mormon like it's some grandiose doctrinal statement when it doesn't even state the core ideas of our doctrine, yeah. exaltation, eternal families, mm-hmm. um, the Godhead, and where it restates Christian theology as, as it's doing here, mm-hmm. it either is uncomfortably in tension with it or does it in, like I'm saying in Ether 12, I actually don't find a lot of tension, but that's because I find it to not be nearly as grandiose as Hebrews 11. I don't mm-hmm. feel like it's dealing with that level of argumentation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I wonder if almost <clears throat> we're supposed to be approaching the Book of Mormon not as the height of all religious thought and scripture, but as the primer. Huh. That was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> this went exactly where I wanted it. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Um, I was wondering why you were smirking over there. Yeah, while I, I love this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, that we don't get these really tangled thought processes um, and these really well-structured arguments. It's our jumping off point. Mm-hmm. And that we're supposed to be doing the work here. So, so kind of along those lines, I think the question I started this with is, what does this add to Hebrews? 
And for me, what I really like and appreciate about Ether 12 is the practicality of it. Like I value, I value the theological discussions and debates about grace and justification and salvation. The more I wrestle with those things though, like the more convinced I am that God is a lot more worried about how I treat my neighbor than he is about where I come down on those arguments. And I feel like there's a way in which, for me, Ether 12 is just super practical. Like, you want to have faith in something, you want to have belief in something, do the work. (laughs) And once you've done the work, let it motivate you, right? I mean, that's what verse four is about, basically. Like, once you have this hope that you can achieve something, that, that becomes an anchor that makes it so that you can continue progressing um, until you achieve the thing that you foresaw with your eye of faith. Um, and look at all these other people who did it, and God helped them do it, right? And um, God's help was given freely, but this kind of help comes when you're trying to do his work, because the kind of help he's talking about here is help to do his work. Um, and uh, I tend to think this gets couched in the language of Hebrews 11, probably by Joseph, not by Moroni and Ether. Um, and that maybe creates some comparisons that I don't know entirely what to do with all the time. One of the things I love about the end of Ether 12, um, is where it goes in chapter 13. So in chapter 13, now all of a sudden we're onto this random prophecy of this new Jerusalem, right? By Ether. By Ether. And again, this is the part he gives us wholesale instead of one of the prophets. Well, and it's okay. And it's absurd that this is in Ether's voice. Yeah. Because like the new Jerusalem, what does that mean to Ether? Yeah. He doesn't know anything about the old Jerusalem. So we're going to, let's put a pin in that. To me, so, so then we get this, this very practical Ether 12 turns into this prophecy that seems utterly impractical for Ether right? I mean, he's talking about something that's going to be happening eons into the future, and he's referencing old symbols that seem like they should be meaningless to him. Um, And maybe I'm just totally, like, resting the scriptures to be what I want, but what I end up getting out of this is like, oh yeah, faith is supposed to build Zion. It is interesting for it to be a literal prophecy. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just think Ether's prophecy was more about like build Zion and then through filters it became Zion will be built or whatever. It would certainly be, I mean, I, I, I sometimes see this approached as a literal prophecy, which is certainly an interesting position to take given the modern church's stance on building Zion, which is stop coming to Utah. Right. It's no longer geographical in nature. Yeah. I think these do tie together, at least to some extent. You know, you bring up this question of how much we're reading Joseph into this or or how much we're reading Moroni or anyone else. I think we can safely say that given the proximity, some, some of the similar stuff might be happening here, personally. Yeah, and I guess where, where I really like the way this ties up um, is, you know, we talked right at the very beginning about this idea that faith is a hope in something you haven't yet achieved. And it's that hope that you can achieve it that motivates you to act, right? And in some sense, I think a lot of prophecy about Zion is basically that. It's, it's no, look, it's, it's going to happen. Like, that society that you long for, it's going to be built. You can have hope that it can be done, get to work. And, you know, the fact that it gets, that this is about this new Jerusalem that's going to be built in the Americas, I... Personally, I totally see a developing Joseph in that text. Um, but but I am very comfortable with the idea that as Ether, that the thing that people got annoyed with Ether about was the idea that they could build this beautiful society out of the wreckage that was their society at the time. That's the thing they couldn't see. That's the thing they couldn't exercise faith in. They couldn't believe in a God who could actually do that. Hmm. And Ether's insistingly prophesying that if they'll just do what he asks, if they'll just exercise faith, if they'll just um, go to the effort to come to like good, solid beliefs, then yes, God really can build it. 
and in the Book of Mormon, that gets turned into we really can build it on our continent. And maybe someday we can change it to whatever continent you live on so you don't have to be like, oh, I don't live in the promised land. Um, well, and the asterisk that, of course, the prophet of God talking to the people in front of him is going to say that you people in front of me can build right. Zion. Right. Otherwise, like, why? Yeah. what's the use of a prophecy thousands of years in the future to a people that don't even believe in God. Um, so I guess um, to just kind of try and, well, to be frank, I don't think there's a super neat way to wrap up the conversation we've had. I mean, I think we've discussed some difficult things today. Um, there's just, for me, a lot of ways in which the Book of Mormon is not what we think of it as and doesn't claim to be that. But for me, at least personally, that isn't, that isn't a judgment. Do you have something you want to say? Have we considered the possibility that the new Jerusalem was just fourth Nephi? That is neat. <laughs> no, no, we have not, but it makes very good sense. I mean, I kind of look at this in the sense, so if we're taking this non-literally, which I feel like we've set pretext for, which I think was an important pretext to set. So thank you, Taylor, for introducing that. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I think this is important is I don't think that we go through the Old Testament and some of the things they say about Jerusalem, and I don't think we always take that literally about today. I think we recognize that many of those prophecies have been fulfilled, right? That, you know, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, and then <laughs> where do they get? They get to their promised land. Right. We recognize that as fulfilled. Well, and here we have a prophecy about something that will occur later, <clears throat> this new Jerusalem. Well, when is this taking place? When is, the, when is this transmission actually occurring? I think it's earlier. Because we're talking about the transmission of this record from the destroyed Jaredites through Coriantumr to the Nephites. That's way back in Omni. Yeah, well, the, the transition of the record actually happens with Limhi, right? Where they find, where they discover the plates. Yeah. So that's in Mosiah, but... Yeah, so this is forever ago. Yeah. So if he's prophesying about a new Jerusalem, why can't that be the society that the Nephites found with the coming of Christ, which would make sense? I mean, they basically say, you know, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what occurs when Christ is crucified? He creates a new heaven. For people to dwell in. He redeems the dead. I mean, it seems like it's the fulfillment of prophecy, and then Moroni reads it into being a future prophecy, because he does that with, that's kind of his M.O. Yeah, Joseph certainly does that too. Well, yeah, and, and we've talked a lot about recontextualizing right. prophecy, right? but I don't think we need to necessarily look at this as an eschatology. Yeah, I agree. So I, I this podcast has already gone kind of long, but I, I want to ask, a, I want to I think it's valuable to ask one more question before we finish. It seems like one of the things we've kind of all agreed on in this discussion, at least I haven't heard any dissent, is that the Book of Mormon is distinct from the Bible in the sense that it's not making strong theological arguments um, about, at least not about, in the same kind of... Perhaps not making the complicated theological arguments. Because, like, faith is still a strong argument. So I'm not sure strong's the word you're looking for there. Involved? Yeah. The Book of Mormon is not making involved theological arguments, and it, it doesn't really serve as the foundation for those parts of our own theology that make us unique. We don't find exaltation there. We don't find uh, eternal families there. Um, we don't find, like much about even like our church structure. There's a, there's a lot of things that we, we are, that we are core to who we are that, that show up much later in our history than in the Book of Mormon. And I guess, um, I think for a lot of people, that's a novel thought. <laughs> people tend to think of the Book of Mormon as like our authoritative scripture. Um, and I just think there's a lot of ways in which that's just really not true. Um, and so I guess I wanted to ask, um, I, I wanted to just take a second to see if we could flesh that out? Does that make people uncomfortable? If so, why? And if not, why? Should we be worried about this? No. 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 It sets us apart. It's different. Well, like, involved 
uninvolved things don't have to be any less beloved or any less useful. Like think about the life lessons you got out of your picture books as a kid. Like I can think of multiple ones that shaped me as a person. It doesn't have to be complicated to be powerful. It does make me want to double down on my study of the Doctrine and Covenants, though, because that's where we get all of our stuff. And it's like, I feel like I've read the Book of Mormon more times than the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and we get a lot of our stuff from the Bible, too. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've always, the, the Book of Mormon is great, but I've always looked at, at, at the four books of Scripture, at my quad, as, as the place to go to, not just the Book of Mormon. And I've never placed the Book of Mormon as this this better above all those those other scriptures as a keystone, even. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes our religion different, right? But yeah, I, I think it's, it's important to understand what we mean by keystone. There, I'm, I'm yeah. not trying to be facetious, but I, I think we, you know, and I think that in, we, in that sense, yeah. keystone means not that it provides the whole thing. Yeah, there's so but many other it, things in there. It provides an important, yeah, connector. It's important. But I think we expand it beyond connector to it's the whole foundation. Yeah. yeah. Um. So does that answer your question? I can see why somebody would be uncomfortable. Sure. Oh, of course. But I would have been it, uncomfortable at the beginning of the podcast. In the church or even outside the church. Yeah, yeah either way. However, I think it's useful to think of the Book of Mormon more as a contextualizing lens that points toward the New Testament. I, I think in many ways it is useful. Uh, as this argument that Jesus Christ is a universal deity that deserves your adoration, even if some of the details may be different, that rather than being a regional religion, the teachings of Jesus are universally applicable, and that can build our faith in the New Testament. I do think it's a tragedy when we look at the Book of Mormon and don't study the New Testament. And I think it's an additional tragedy when we look at the Book of Mormon and we try to wring more out of it than it claims to be offering. Because I just think that it strains our faith. We end up in this position of reading this phrase that we were talking about at the beginning in Ether chapter 12, verse 6, in kind of that same way where we just close our eyes and try not to think about the fact that the Book of Mormon doesn't say these things that we think it should say. <laughs> instead, of, instead of stepping back and saying, I don't have to let go of the value of the Book of Mormon. I don't have to let go of its ability to point me to Christ. I don't have to let go of it being a book that, as Joseph said, can help me get close to God in order to let go of it having certain theological arguments in it, or in order to let go of it being complete in certain ways. Um, Ether 12 is not complete in the way that Hebrews is complete, but it still provides some really beautiful practical advice that I have found incredibly useful in my day-to-day walk with God. I have found it to point me to Christ. I have found it to do what Joseph said it could do, bring me closer to God. Nice. And as Andrew just said, I have found in that a lens that influences the way I understand Paul as well. Um, so we made it through 12 and 13. <laughs> well, the That's rest okay. You've already yeah, read the rest. Yeah, the rest is... <laughs> Nothing else happens. <laughs> fighting, 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 head chopped off. Like you haven't been here before. Small break (laughs) to gather himself and then head chopped off. I like that. Like that note. Yeah. Took a breather. Nice little detail there. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Third Hour Podcast. We're sorry. And you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting different personality insights right now. (laughs) We would love to hear your thoughts. Put them on the Facebook page. I'm in charge of that one. We hope you'll join us again next week when we will tackle the book of Moroni. Thank you for joining us. This was the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at the thirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.